Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Flowerpot podcast and today I have with me Dr Laura Jones. Hello Laura. Hello Bruce. Now um, so far in this series we haven't been talking much hard science but today we're going to go a little bit into the down and dirty and really get to know a little bit about the science that we've been happening at the Botanic Garden and uh, now Laura has become a Dr Laura within the last year was it before the Covid? Uh, it was just before COVID, yeah. Okay, so it's a little bit longer. But Laura, you've been uh, associated with the garden or working here in different capacities for quite a long time now. How long? When did you start? Yeah, I was thinking about it and it's just coming up to the 10th year. No! Yeah, so mm. I would have started in uh, July 2011. So yeah, and tell, tell us why did you come here in the first place? Um, yeah, so... Uh, I actually joined the Botanic Garden as um, an undergraduate placement uh, researcher, so um, taking uh, a year out between second year and third year, or final year, uh, of university. Which university? Uh, I went to Cardiff University. Okay. Um, so joined the garden uh, with the other placement uh, guys as well, all from sort of different universities, um, and then, yeah, went back, finished my degree, and then came back to do more more science and then I haven't left. <laughs> okay. Now every year we have uh, we have two what we call industrial year placement mm. students and uh, this year has been Katie and Thomas. So you were possibly were you in the first ones of doing that? Uh, I we were the fourth year. Were you? The fourth year, yeah. Okay. We had kind of like always increased. So uh, the first time there was one student, the second year there was one student, then the third year there were two, yeah. and then when I did it there were four students. Oh, were they? Yeah. What were the names of the people you were with? Can you uh, remember? So it was Joe, um, Helena. Uh, they lived on site. So most most of the time, most years, uh, the students live on site in one of our farmhouses. Uh, and then there was myself and Addy, and we were both local, so that's why we had sort of more students that year. Right, I've got you. And so when you first applied here, why did you think, oh, I wouldn't mind doing an industrial year placement at the Botanic Garden? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I think I'd sort of realised in my second year of uni was the thing that I was sort of really interested in was um, molecular ecology. Mm -hmm. uh, so combining DNA um, with actual ecology whole organism, so looking at um, population genetics or looking at yeah the genetics of uh, in conservation sort of context. Um, so I knew I was kind of interested in that and we actually came on a field trip uh, with Cardiff University in my first year yeah. and I heard um, uh, Natasha Devere, Dr Natasha Devere, our head of science, um, give a talk um, and I think that was just in my head as well as uh, um, this amazing kind of DNA research that was going on on plants. Um, so when I saw the advert for it, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I would love to be there. And the degree you were taking there was? Uh, biology. And to this day, we still get in students every year from Cardiff University doing yeah. biology coming here, probably like you. Yeah, the same trip, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, yeah, because I have to give a little talk every year for that. Oh, I love it, you know, because you just know you're talking to people who in 10 years' time, will be something, yeah. which is really good. Well, not something else, but... You know. <laughs> so that's great. So you got your degree, mm -hmm. and then you thought you'd like to do an MSc. Is that right? Is that how it progressed? Um, I, well, what actually happened was... Um, so I came out of my final year. I wasn't, you know, 100% sure. I was kind of thinking about doing a PhD or doing sort of further um, uh, kind of study. Um, and during my um, placement year, I worked on a project uh, on a rare Welsh plant called Campanula patula. 
Uh, so we did some DNA work, we did um, surveys of the populations. It's a species that's found in the kind of Welsh border areas. Um, so we, we were doing kind of uh, conservation work on that species. Um, and that got taken forward as an MPhil by another placement student, Charlie Long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so when she uh, was doing her master's, um, I had a free summer, I'd just come out of um, uni. So I helped her with her field work. Um, and then at that point, Natasha, uh, to me, was like, oh, we've got another master's if you'd like to um, work on another um, Welsh uh, plant species called Sixtizer pretensis, Devil's Witscabius. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I started working on that project then as part of my MPhil. So that was... Um, uh, a research-based master's, so I was based at the Botanic Garden. Um, I didn't have sort of taught modules, um, and I just worked on the research project for the year. Right. Okay. Do you know? I, I just you just reminded me. I remember for some reason going on a road trip to the borders of England, Wales, uh, looking for it's a spreading spreading bellflower. Spreading isn't bellflower. It? Yeah. Looking yeah. for that, and I've forgotten why I was doing that. So you've now reminded me. <laughs> I don't think we found any on that day, but I think part of that is you find evidence that there's nothing there. Yeah, so yeah. Um, we for that survey when I was doing my placement, the, um, yeah, we were f visiting basically all of the known records ever recorded of Campanula patula. So some of them, you know, were from uh, the 80s, some were from the 1800s um, because they were from herbarium records, so the press, yeah. press plant records. And it's a very um, transient species. It has a really, really long seed bank, um, so it can be in the soil for a long time. And then it just needs a bit of soil disturbance and it can kind of pop up again. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, we definitely found um, plants at sites where it had been the ACs that where it had been recorded last. Um, and then, yeah, some of the populations that, you know, might be dead certs, it kind of needs a couple more years before it'll pop up again. Right. And if I'm right, one of the reasons for its decline was thought of, was, am I right with this, saying that the wild boar wasn't around anymore to snuffle up the soil? Yeah, there's definitely one site. Um, so there's quite, quite a few sites in kind of Monmouthshire, uh, y Valley sort of area, and there was definitely a uh, sort of wood, wooded area there where they they were, they used to be wild boar. They would have yeah made little uh, kind of digs into the soil and yeah. brought these things up. Uh, we found one at the site actually where um, big estate, big huge mansion, and you know tennis courts, huge thing. And the owners they'd cut a new path through their woods two years ago, and then it had had come up all along there as well. So after you um, went into doing a PhD. Yeah, so did, did my MPhil. Um, there was actually a little bit of a gap um, where I was doing sort of other things for the garden then. So I, I, I did a lot of public engagement. Um, I did... Uh, what in? Um, discussing the science, basically, and going to all the kind of events that um, we would go to. So the Esteadford, the Royal Welsh, um, yeah. doing all of those things and kind of uh, communicating our science and, and the work that we do. Um, and as kind of as part of that as well, I actually wrote um, the science content for the website when our website was sort of all redesigned and rewritten. Um, so I, I was doing that, that sort of work. Um, and then in the meantime, I was kind of helping the placement students that were uh, sort of currently there as well. Um, as we sort of set up our new projects, looking at the hives that we have on site. Um, so sort of setting that up as a pilot study, which went, then went on to be the kind of main focus of my PhD uh, with the Botanic Garden and Bangor University. So actually, I should say as well, my master's was with Aberystwyth. So I did my undergrad at Cardiff, I did my master's at okay. Aberystwyth, and my PhD at Bangor. Okay. <laughs> so I was moving around, just getting all those universities. Yeah, and what you've done here, you can like, you, you sort of like... Uh, you, you you've moved around all your time here. You've been sort of on a steady ship going forward, 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 but you kind of get distracted every now and again, don't you? And you end up doing like things like media, talking to the TV and things like that. So yeah, I mean, it's always... That's one of the nice things about being in 
you know, a visitor attraction as well. We, it's really important to have um, the science and that we're doing the science, but we want to be able to communicate that to people, you know, through different displays, through events of the garden, but also um, through, you know, talking to the media. Uh, so I, I think um, sometimes my sort of foray into it ended up sometimes being because Natasha wasn't available. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I get yeah, to yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was, uh, we were on... Um, uh, Country File, I think, was the first thing with Helen Skelton interviewed us about the honey work. Um, and then a bit more sort of tied up to my PhD as well is that uh, we were featured on Gardener's World and there we made a request for people, beekeepers, to send in their honey uh, so we could analyse it. And that formed one of the chapters and then papers of my PhD. I even saw you on the telly the other day. I switched on ITV News and there you were talking about bluebells <laughs> yeah. from next to our, our, right, our right house. <laughs> hey, that's Laura, that. I, was like, I can give all the good facts that I know about bluebells. Once <laughs> 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 uh, David, our head of uh, marketing, asked me. <laughs> a uh, very short notice. <laughs> I was very impressed with that one. And uh, we'll come back to public engagement a little bit more. So, the, so we're now talking about uh, starting a PhD. So um, you, to do that, where did you do your PhD? So based on the Botanic Garden, which is yeah. the, you know, the really fantastic thing, but with uh, Bangor University, uh, with sort of collaborators that we have there as well. Um, I guess I should say, so um, one of the amazing opportunities with the PhD and the kind of reason that I was able to do it at the Botanic Garden uh, is that the funding scheme uh, is called KESS, uh, which stands for Knowledge, Economic Skills Scholarship. Um, and it's really about uh, skilling people uh, upskilling people in um, economically deprived areas and you know Wales is one of those within the sort of context of the EU it was EU funding um, and as part of that kind of funding scheme the garden it could act as the kind of company uh, so I could be the PhD student sort of attached to that and then uh, I'll have the university as well um, so yeah I got to do my research based at the Botanic Garden studying the, the honeybee hives that we have on site here um, we have labs based at the garden as well, so I could do all of my lab work um, uh, on site too, up until kind of sequencing where it gets sent off then. Um, and then, yeah, we also have, you know, amazing um, uh, bioinformaticians as well, uh, kind of volunteer bioinformaticians. Um, so I, I really could develop all of those skills. Use that word. Let's go back mm-hmm. to that word. Bio what? Bioinformaticians. <laughs> I've never heard of that word. <laughs> it basically means, I guess, pe- uh, people who are good with computers <laughs> and then relating yeah. to biology. Uh, so, you know, one of the things with um, DNA work uh, over the kind of course of the the years that these like fields have been developing is that you know we've gone from having maybe a single dna sequence relating to a plant individual to millions and millions of sequences being returned from one sequencing run um, so the kind of problem then becomes how do you deal with all of those sequences so that's where you need the kind of computing power and you need the the coding skills to be able to sort of deal with that information wow so let's just peel back even further though on this one essentially you were looking at where honeybees forage from. Yeah, so the, um, uh, what we were interested in is, well, yeah, what, what are honeybees foraging on uh, within the landscape? And we kind of looked at that in uh, two different ways for my PhD. So um, on a kind of close uh, temporal scale, so through the months um, from the hives here at the garden. And what we can do is we can get um, the pollen from the honey uh, so get the honey, um, extract the pollen out, and then get the DNA from the pollen. Um, 
all of that work um, to be able to identify the species is reliant on the fact that we developed a reference library where um, we have all of the UK um, uh, flowering species uh, and their sort of relevant DNA sequence matched up to their identification. So when we get all of those unknown sequences back from the honey, um, all these millions and millions of sequences, we can compare to our reference library and get an identification out. So uh, across the months, find out what um, plants honeybees were foraging on and get that information uh, within you know, quite a unique landscape that we have here. So we've obviously got um, a big horticultural resource, but we've also got the National Nature Reserve. So we've got this um, uh, organic farmland that they can go into and forage from. Um, so look at that. And then also look at uh, honey samples from beekeepers across the UK. So put that foraging also then into a UK context of what plants are most important to honeybees throughout the whole of the UK. See, it's, it's funny to, to uh, a more of a layman like myself uh, beforehand, you know, you kind of, before I got to know the sort of the work you were doing, you kind of think that everyone knows these sort of things already. And then it turns out they don't. This is, this is what amazed me. There was a book, wasn't there, in the 1950s, written I'm, I'm a, tell me about that one that you're comparing your data with yeah there's one that i was often like referred to by fn house um who is a master beekeeper um and then uh, what we actually ended up doing with in terms of you know data collection was comparing that uk honey um to the last uk honey sort of survey so i i got about um uh, 500 samples um, from beekeepers um, and there was about 800 samples collected in uh, the 1950s uh, by a beekeeper called um, ASC Deans and he did this as part of his um, uh, beekeeping diploma. Uh, in the 1950s it obviously wouldn't have been DNA that they were identifying um, things by but microscopy so looking under a microscope at the pollen from the honey and identifying it by appearance um so that's one of the benefits of using dna we can get more information we can often yeah. detect more sort of plant species but some of also the ids that you get from um, microscopy are quite similar uh, where we can't actually discriminate between things um, so that was also interesting um, but be, by sort of uh, comparing between the 1950s and, and 2017, we were able to uh, really see the patterns of um, those large scale landscape changes that we've seen over the course of, um, of the century. Uh, so things like increase in um, oilseed rape, oilseed rape was only a crop that kind of came into the UK um, uh, post of 1960s. Um, so a big increase in brassica uh, in the honey um, and then things like uh, a decrease in white clover, probably related to um, the change from sort of hay meadow management to silage and the availability yeah. of flowering white clover in the landscape. Um, and then also increases in things like um, Himalayan balsam, which is an invasive species that's really increases in its distribution. It was detected in the honey in the 1950s, but um, uh, there was more of it in 2017. No surprise, really. Did anyone do a taste test? Have there been... Because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big mm. honey eater. I love my different types of honey. So was it written about in the 50s, people describing the taste of honeys compared to now? Oh, I'm sure there is something out there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't come across it in my research. And the thing is, now, I've, you know, we, we took um, 10 grams. I took 10 grams of honey, um, and that's what I asked for from beekeepers uh, to do the, the DNA analysis. But um, often we got a lot more. So we actually have got cupboards full <laughs> of honey <laughs> that I've stored away. Um, so if anyone wants to do a taste, taste analysis... I'm up for that. That'd be, that'd be really good. So the other thing as well, which a lot of people probably won't know, even on 
from the 1950s, and people won't probably realise that, that different types of pollen look very different as well to the eye. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, under the microscope. Um, I mean, some, some of the, the, the problem is with the microscopy, you have to be very talented at it. And in a way, you also have to do a similar thing to the DNA, which is create a reference library of the pollens around you, right? So go to a plant yeah. that you know, make a slide of the pollen so that you can identify it when you have a big mixture. And things like grass pollen, um, even to this day, is, is, is really difficult to do under a microscope. It, it just looks like grass. Uh, it can be identified as grass pollen. Do bees collect grass pollen? Um, that's one of the kind of debates because um, there's some evidence of active collection from, from grass species and, yeah. and definitely from um, nectarless species. So something like plantago comes up a lot and oh, we yeah. see sort of active foraging on um, plantain. But what probably happens as well is that these pollens are you know, very available in the air and the bees are flying through the air getting, um, let me get this right, negatively charged. <laughs> and so the pollen sort of clings to them from the air um, and ends up in their bodies. Oh, is that like rubbing yourself with a balloon yeah, on your jumper? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, right, okay. there's definitely kind of like electrostatic things which happen as well between like pollen and pollinators and yeah. all sorts of things going on. So yeah, there's probably some accidental pollen uh, with that, but it might be doing some nutritional things as well um, at sort of ending up in the honey. But. Fascinating. And, and, and by looking at the DNA, um, what we need to go back to a little bit, just to stand back a little bit here, is that Natasha Devere and the team, which includes you, were the first people in the world to uh oh actually you explain it better <laughs> um so we made wales the first country in the world to dna barcode all of its native flora so that dna barcode that's what i was talking about in terms of you know our dna sequence that we're looking at and um, it's a sort of specific region and those are internationally agreed um regions of dna um, so uh, researchers around the world, they are DNA barcoding organisms, um, you know, wherever they are. Um, and with plants, those are, um, well, now three markers. So um, RBCL, ITS2 and MACK, that's the names of those regions, but those okay. are the kind of agreed ones. So, yeah, big initiative around the world, everyone's sort of uh, doing it. Um, in Wales, we, we did all of the, um, the Welsh sort of native species. Um, and then once we've done that, uh, so we've published that work. Uh, so it's all also open access, it's freely available, so um, anyone can use it for their research. What's nice about Wales as a kind of botanical area um, and a kind of an area of, of the UK is that it's actually quite diverse in terms of our landscape. So we've got coastal, we've got um, mountainous. So it's actually only another uh, roughly sort of 300 species to do the rest of the UK. So then we did that as well. Uh, so now we've just published that in 2021. So um, uh, we've got all of the UK natives. Um, okay, let's, do, let's just allow you to punch the air a little bit here. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a spectacular claim, isn't it? Yeah. Wales, the first country in the world to have a DNA barcode of all its native flora. Yeah. And That's amazing, isn't it? And it, yeah, with a really small team as well. Um, so Natasha, um, you know, at the time was the only full-time um, employed scientist at the, at the garden. We had the placement students, so the generations of placement students that also worked on that as well, doing the lab work, um, yeah. keeping that all sort of together as well. So um, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was a really amazing effort. Um, and I think all the students who probably worked on that, that will resonate through their career that they've been part of that as well. I think that's, that's really, really neat. They'll always have that sort of sense of achievement yeah, as well. Yeah. What I really love as well is the way you've been able to... So after you've done that, there could have been a, yeah, so what? You've barcoded all the plants, but what you've done is made a practical use of it, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. So 
you know my my phd so the the honey work that is using that resource um to be able to do that research and to be able to you know make confident claims from what we can kind of identify and then uh the other projects that we've um you know started as well are the phd researchers um so i was looking at um just honeybees and we kind of established that as a um proof of concept as well um and now we're looking at wild pollinators as well. So that's, that's Abby Lowe? Yes, so yeah. um, Abigail Lowe, who's um, another PhD student uh, who's writing up at the moment, uh, she was looking at uh, wild pollinators within the garden kind of landscape as well. Uh, so honeybees are a managed species. Uh, we also have in the UK um, uh, bumblebees, uh, around uh, over 20 species of bumblebee. Uh, around 230 species of solitary bee um, and she's also looking at hoverflies which we've got about 270 species of hoverfly as well. That's a lot of work as well isn't it? Yeah I always joke it's that um, <laughs> I had an easy job because I know where the honeybees are I just had to go to the hives and get the honey yeah. while Abby has to go out into the you know the field and find these things. <laughs> and she's even to this day sweating away trying to write up a PhD yeah. isn't she? And you've also um, did your work inform the work of Lucy Witter as well? Yeah, definitely. So um, Lucy uh, did a bit of a combination as well of the kind of t different techniques. But um, so Lucy was looking at um, pollinator foraging again, but within the context of annual seed mixes. Uh, so a lot of people really love the look of annual seed mixes where you've got um, uh, poppies and uh, really nice slice sort of annual plants, uh, which if people have been to the Botanic Garden, they might have seen Lucy's sort of trial plots by our bandstand. They, they were standout. Yeah. They, they, they were people, people talked about them for ages. They, <laughs> they were, were really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I think just having, because Lucy had 44 by 4 metre plots that she used in her study, and I think just having them all next to each other was also very impressive with the little borders. Yeah. But... Um, uh, so yeah, so she was then looking at um, bumblebee and hoverfly solitary bee foraging within those. Were certain mixes more attractive? She tested um, commercial mixes, but also then designed mixes. Um, and she used observation studies, so doing sort of 10 minute surveys on, on those plots, but also collecting the pollinators um, and DNA barcoding the pollen on their bodies then. Um, and what's interesting about that compared to the observation, those observation studies, you know, they can tell you something about the, the seed mix and how good the seed mix is. But when you DNA barcode the, the pollinators that are visiting those seed mixes, then you're getting information about what they were doing before they were on the seed mix. So there were plants like um, brambles and buttercups and things which weren't in the seed mixes, which were offered, like supplying some of their, uh, their food as well. So having that kind of wider context of the foraging. Simple. You, all your work as well has probably informed a lot of work of Linda Christie, who's our beekeeper here, is that right? Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do any of the, the honey work without Linda, because Linda is our, our beekeeper. Um, she looks after the hives. Um, she looks after the hives in, in you know, a very sympathetic way as well. It's not about um, getting as much honey as possible off them. Um, it's really seeing them as a, as a kind of education um, a resource uh, and, a, and a science resource as well to be able to sort of um, let them have their honey to be able to get through the sort of season as well. And the end result of it, and again, I remember, again, turning on my, um, looking at my BBC website once, I think I was probably looking for the cricket results or something, <laughs> <laughs> and I saw you on there. Ah. You were on there, weren't you, like some while ago on the news sections and the science news sections? Yeah, the... Um I mean, fairly recently was the UK Honey Paper, so we published that, and that got a lot of coverage um, uh, from uh, lots of different newspapers, which was really exciting. I, 
I think it was like quite a nice like storyline in terms of yeah comparing with the 1950s it had like nice um nice results um uh so yeah it was it was it was good to see it get that coverage now uh, we've, we've got a joint colleague called paul smith who's the head of education here and he was doing a thing with um uh, a school last week whereby he was trying to get them to go into a meadow trying to look for certain wildflowers and working out the amount of nectar that each wildflower collects and so they could work out a um, calculation about how far sipping from one flower will allow that pollinator to fly mm-hmm. and he was telling me he said oh, I've got this like, really uh, great information of Laura but you can't allow anybody can't let anyone see it <laughs> because it's uh, it's all a bit it's kind of like you know it's all first-hand information mm-hmm. so it all sounded lo- wonderfully cloak and dagger is that true <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I said to Paul was and um, so we we've not one of the things that we would really like to sort of incorporate into our um, research now and that's definitely one of the lines that we're going to go down is um, kind of nectar measurements and pollen measurements and things like that but uh, there's some amazing researchers in um, Bristol um, uh, there's a paper from uh, a woman, uh, the first author was Bode, um, and that has the nectar measurements for kind of UK uh, species, and they uh, looked at then habitats through throughout the UK and kind of estimated the nectar contribution from those habitats. So I think that's where the data comes from. Uh, I don't I think... think. <laughs> um, I can't take credit <laughs> for polls. So. Okay, but I enjoyed it. But I'll tell you what, it was great for kids. It's a really... Yeah good way instead of trying to show kids what plants names are they had a reason for finding that out yeah, and then they yeah. could actually work something out themselves and understand that nature was connected and again i think this is all um, a, a beautiful thing that you can do because we're a botanic garden rather than just an academic institution being here as a botanic garden is important for all this isn't it yeah definitely um it, it's a really important, you know, all of the science is a really important part of being a botanic garden and, and sort of delivering on conservation and, and research. Um, and for me personally, you know, being able to, to be here and, and do science in this environment, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for it as well. And you've now moved on in some ways. I know you're still continuing doing this in another way. But you're looking at soil as well at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, so applying the same techniques, you know, getting DNA out of a thing and yeah. IDing it. Um, so that's part of our Biophilic Wheels project. Um, and we went out and surveyed uh, um, grasslands in uh, national nature reserves throughout Wales. Uh, so we did a winter sampling, we did a summer sampling, and we collected um, soil cores. Uh, and what we'd like to do is look at the sort of plant content of that, look at the fungi content, uh, microbes and potentially animals as well, um, and really try and characterise the biodiversity of those soils and see how we can relate that to management and monitoring of those communities. Then. And I'm, I've got a bit of a selfish interest <laughs> because you've been also taking soils from the different hay meadows we have here yeah. and looking at the different stages of transition they're in. And I can't wait for the results to come out. Mm. A bit nervous about it. Uh, do you have a feel for when the, the results might come out? Soon, hopefully. Because, well, we've, uh, we're doing them in a sort of separate sequencing run. So the plant one, we sent that off and I've had the results back. Um, and I've got sequences so far. So I'm just at the last stage. I just need to um, uh, actually compare it with the reference database. Um, and then, yeah, we'll have some initial results which should be really exciting i love this. this is all your kind of all building up from all the research you've got and all the t- 
all the specialism, the skills that you've developed, and you're applying them in this really interesting way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great. Do, 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 there, is there a next step that you're really particularly interested in doing? or? You, the thing that I've, um, I, I don't know if I have much of a sort of career trajectory, the thing I've always yeah. wanted to just be doing is learning new things and, yeah, yeah developing skills and, uh, yeah, you know, learning more about um, uh, genetic techniques. The, the thing with, like, I suppose, yeah, the, the kind of genetic side of things is that this is all, you know, technology that has been developing over the, you know, even the past 10 years. Um, how much has changed is amazing. And eventually we're going to be at the point where, uh, we can all have kind of USB um, DNA sequences and we can put our sample and get everything, you know, straight away. So, yeah, that trajectory is amazing. <laughs> Do you, are you one of those who thinks, oh, that's going to be too easy? You know, you sometimes <laughs> <laughs> get those, get, you, particularly with things like plants and fungi, sometimes people think, oh, we'll just have to take one sample. It'll tell you everything about it. Tell you everything about it, yeah. No, you definitely, I think one of the things that I've learned with um, all of the work that we do, you, you really do need to have a grounding in the plant ID and an idea of, you know, your, your sampling universe and the things that are going, going to come up in your sample. You can't really look at our results, um, you know, the raw results that we get and go, ah, yeah, I know exactly what that is. You had no <laughs> idea what a plant, you know, yeah. what that means, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, even from the creation of the, the reference library initially, where we really needed taxonomic experts to be able to sort of verify that, you need plant knowledge to be able to, and you need biological knowledge to be able to sort of interpret these results. Yeah. So um, it'd, it'd be nice. I, I feel like, you know, those ID apps, we get recommended those a lot. Yeah. And I think, oh, yeah, it's good. You know, if you have no idea, it's, it's really, really helpful, isn't it? Like, it's fab to sort of narrow it down. Um, but then you just think of all those, like, tiny ID characteristics so you need to stop it well I look back on my life and all those hours and hours and hours ago through ID books and tearing my hair out and all that and I want to feel it's for something yeah <laughs> and there's Curious, a reason yeah. I'm looking down at handlers yeah that's right so um, the other thing we used to be uh, a little bit jealous of you sometimes you, you, you've been to uh, conferences abroad haven't you yeah yeah so that's one of the really nice things about um, yeah doing science and, and going to scientific conferences is that they're often in really nice places <laughs> uh nerve-wracking yeah hugely hugely i think with yeah again you know getting to do um uh, public engagement and things so that's really helpful but um yeah I'm, I'm, i've you know you get used to maybe very often delivering your research or talking about your research to laymen or people that you need to kind of explain concepts to and things and yeah. um, so then when you go to a scientific conference uh, there's that added stress of uh, speaking to people who know probably more than you do <laughs> what's the scariest one you went to then or when oh, um probably i guess one of the earlier ones um oh we, i went to what was that that was a conservation biology conference and there was uh, a kind of workshop what was um, this by the way that was in Yavuskala. Uh, Finland, okay. um, in a kind of university town in Finland, um, it, it was really nice. But yeah, we were delivering um, a, a workshop, and we'd been invited to do that. And I think that was that was maybe that that added stress of that. I was kind of trying to teach people <laughs> techniques as well. Oh, yeah. um, uh, but that was yeah, it was exciting. Okay, well, thanks, Laura. This has been absolutely great. Uh, I think who 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 do you think we should speak to next time we talk about science here? Oh, definitely Abby. Yeah, I reckon so. <laughs> definitely Abby. She would have to finish her PhD first. Yeah, I think she might not. <laughs> she might have to concentrate on that first of okay. all. Okay, and that shouldn't be too long, though. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Thanks, Laura. Thank you very much.